Cool. So Romans chapter 6 is where we are going to be tonight. Now, I think what we're going to talk about tonight is probably one of the most important things that you can learn or you can talk about when it comes to, when it comes to just being a Christian in everyday life. Okay, being a Christian in everyday life. Because I think when we don't understand this, when we don't understand this, sorry, I'm going to turn this fan off over here. Right, when we don't understand what we're going to talk about tonight, it leads to, one, a ton of unneeded anxiety. A ton of unneeded anxiety, and it also leads to frustrations and different things like that. So it's very important for us to know what exactly we're going to be talking about tonight. So, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, what shall we say then? Before I even move any further. He says, what shall we say then? It's like, okay, well, what does he mean by that? See, Paul has just, for the, for the past five chapters, has been laboring and explaining to the to church in Rome how it is that a person is saved. So in the first chapter, just to kind of recap a little bit, he talked about the fact that he talked about the holiness of God and how all of us are guilty of sin. All of us. We all fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is due to, is, is, is due to receive the wrath of God because of our, of our rebellion against God and how no one is exempt from this. No person is exempt from rebelling against God. And because of this, we deserve eternal punishment. But what we see as we continue on into chapter 3, even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what we find is that ultimately God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be redeemed and made right with him. That Jesus came, lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He died the death that we deserved, ultimately making it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins and have a right relationship with God. In chapter 4, we talked about, this, we talked about okay, well, all right, man, I acknowledge, man, that, that I am saved by this grace that Jesus has, that this grace that God offers me. Here's the question, how do I receive this grace? Do I receive this grace by praying a prayer or, or by performing certain sacraments or coming to church or whatever? How do I receive this grace? How do I receive salvation? We receive this salvation strictly through faith. That we are made right with God, not by our own efforts. Right? We're not made right by God. I'm not, I'm not made right with God because I'm a pastor. I'm not forgiven of my sins because I teach the Bible on a regular basis. I'm forgiven of my sins strictly because of Jesus Christ and just I simply, by faith, receive what Jesus has done for me. That's how all of us in this room are made right with God is by faith, by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross in the empty tomb. And we receive his grace by our faith. Now, chapter 5, we talked about, okay, what are the implications of this? So last time we were together, the past two times that we were together, we talked about this idea of, of what does it mean now that I'm a Christian? What does it mean now that I am saved? We talked about this idea that ultimately God has imputed righteousness to us, ultimately meaning that when I'm saved, it's not that I was a bad person that I've now been made better. It's that I was a dead person who's been made alive. That I was once dead in my sin, now I've been made alive in Christ, and that ultimately what it means is that God, when he looks at me, 
He has credited Jesus's righteousness to my account, meaning that when God looks at me, he doesn't look at me as someone who was a sinner and is now, you know, better. He looks at me as righteous as his son, spotless, blameless. And this is a legal declaration that God has declared me and he has declared you, if you have placed your faith in Christ, as righteous and blameless and spotless in his eyes. We are clothed in the righteousness and in the perfection of Jesus. And that there is nothing that can strip this away from us. There's nothing that can take this away from us, that we are made alive in Jesus. And it was because of just like one man's act of Adam, right, led to condemnation for all mankind. One man's act of righteousness, that being Jesus' act on our behalf, makes us righteous. That I'm not, you know, that even, so here's the thing, so even when I fall short and I sin, that God has declared me righteous. Even when I go through seasons of doubt and struggle, God has declared me righteous. That I don't have to earn his favor. What we talked about about a month ago now is that if, if God, while I was his enemy, died for me, how, what else, what, how much more will he do for me now that I'm his child? See, a lot of people live with this constant fear of God looming over them. Right, to the religious person, turning away from sin is strictly out of fear of hell oftentimes. Trying to live a, an upright or holy life oftentimes is either to, to, to uh, get away from hell or simply to avoid just God's temporary punishment in his life. But what we see is that as a child of God, as one that has been, has been changed, has been declared righteous, declared blameless and spotless, that I don't have to live my life like that. I don't have to be afraid. When I make mistakes, I don't have to run from God. But when I make mistakes, I run to God knowing that he sees me as righteous. But that leads to a question. And it's a question that Paul's going to address here. It's, okay, now that we've heard this incredible news, what shall we say to these things? Because here's the thing that I want you to know. Is that how you respond to the good news of the gospel is the most important thing about you. How you have responded to the good news of Jesus, I don't, see, I don't care how popular you are. I don't care how many friends you have at school. I don't care what, how good of grades you have. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care who your siblings are. I don't care if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I don't care if you've made a million mistakes in your past or if you've lived a life that man would just, would just make Mother Teresa proud. All that matters is how have you responded to the good news of the gospel? And there's a lot of us that when we hear this idea that, man, like I've been declared righteous and there's nothing that can strip this status from me, that, man, if I've been truly saved and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that that is a permanent declaration that God has made over my life, that what we see in, in Romans is that the call of God is irrevocable. Well, here's the question. Why should I continue to turn from my sin if God no longer counts it against me? 
if God doesn't count my sin against me, then what's the big deal about me sinning anymore? It's like this. Why run from a lion that is dead? Right? If, if God, if Christ has defeated sin in my life, and, and even when I fall short, that God doesn't count that sin against me, then why turn from it? And I think a lot of times we hear this and we're like, okay, like, well, obviously we know that we shouldn't continue in sin. But if you were to ask somebody and say, okay, now that you're saved, why should you not continue in sin? Oftentimes the answers that people will give are not necessarily good ones. And don't answer out loud, but just think about it. What's the reason? Because a lot of times what people will say is, well, if you continue in sin, then you'll no longer be saved. But we've already declared that when someone is saved, that it is a permanent declaration that God has made. So it's not that you lose salvation. Now, you may not have ever been saved. But we're not talking about losing salvation. So here's the question is why should I turn from sin? And this is why when we talk about this idea that grace is scandalous, grace is dangerous, what happens is that for a lot of people, they're afraid to teach the realities of God's grace because they're afraid that people will take it as a license for sin. Just being straight up with you, even for myself, I struggle at times to preach the, the true freedom and liberty that we have in Christ because of the, the goodness of his grace. Because I'm afraid oftentimes that people will hear that and they'll say, oh, that means I can just do whatever I want. I don't know if you guys, have you guys ever heard somebody say that? Usually, sometimes it's a non-Christian that says to you, oh, you just believe that God will forgive you and then you just keep doing whatever you want. You know, and it's amazing how, like, non-Christians will tell Christians what they believe. And Paul knows this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See, he just finished in chapter 5. He just previously said this statement. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Man, grace abounds. Where sin, wherever there is sin, grace abounds even more. You know what? Well, why don't I just continue in sin? And Paul understands this because he, Paul understands something that we need to understand is this: is that sinful people are always looking for ways to justify their sin. Always, we're always constantly looking for ways to justify our sin. Well, God has grace. Maybe you've said, maybe you've said this, maybe not out loud, but you've thought this to yourself. Well, I'll go ahead and just do that thing, and I know that God will forgive me anyway. Well, we can make it a little bit more tangible, right? Like, I'll go ahead and look at that thing that I know I shouldn't look at, or I'll lust after that thing that I know I shouldn't lust after, because I know God's going to forgive me afterwards anyway. Or I'll go ahead and I'll go to that party and I'll do the things that I know I shouldn't do because I know God's going to forgive me anyway. Or I'll sleep in on Sunday morning. I don't need to go to church because God's going to forgive me anyway. We do this all the time. Constantly, constantly looking for ways to justify our sins. Constantly looking for ways to say, you know what? The grace of God is really all it is. It's a parachute that I can use whenever I want to just jump off and sin. I know it will catch me every time. But I want you to listen to what Jude has to say. When was the last time you ever 
heard a reference to Jude in a sermon. Jude verse 4. There's only one chapter in Jude. So Jude verse 4. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to pay attention to what that says. It says that, that they pervert the grace of God for into sensuality. Literally what that means is that they pervert the grace of God into a license for sin, and not only sin, but shameless sin. To be able to sin and do it openly. That they have perverted the grace of God as a means to which they can just go do whatever they want. And I want you to understand something, guys, that is very, very, very important. If your view of God's grace is that, well, it's just a way that I can do whatever I want and not have to worry about the repercussions, it's very, very likely that you have no idea what grace is. And it's also very, very likely that you may not even have a saving relationship with Jesus. What does Paul say? He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? He says, by no means. By no means. In the Greek, it's an emphatic no. No. Something that's interesting when you, when you uh, study Greek, and I am by no means a Greek scholar, but I did get an A in my Greek class this semester, uh, right, is that there's, there's something called tenses. So you know like in English we have tense? Like what tense do we have in, in English? Past, present, future, right? Which so tense, typically when I'm talking about tense in English, I'm talking about like time, right? But in Greek, time is a small factor of tense, and it has more to do with just understanding the action as a whole, right? So this statement, if you... In the Greek, if you were to read it, it is, it is in the present active indicative. What this means is ultimately this, is that one way that you can look at an event, it basically the way it's looking at it here, is that you have an event. You can look at it like this. It's all right. It's an event that happens that has ongoing ramifications. You can look at it that way. You can look at it as an event like this, and you can kind of look at it as a whole, like uh, as a whole event, Right? You could look at it as an event like this, and you're just kind of looking at the starting of this event, and it has really, it's, there's no ending. It just has an indefinite, it just keeps going. The tense that's being used here is this one, which is in, in, in English, they try to make this make sense in English by the phrase to continue in sin. So literally what Paul is saying is this, is that because we've heard this wonderful news of God's grace, should we continue in sin as if nothing ever happened? Should we continue living in sin? Because here's the thing. As Christians, we fall short in sin, don't we? We fall short and we sin. If I sin, does that mean that I'm not saved anymore? course not. We all fall short. I'm a pastor. I fall short. I'm driving on the road. Somebody cuts me off. I'm like, you know, I think things or I want to say things or whatever. We fall short. We make mistakes. Even sometimes we do things intentionally. We know we shouldn't do them. But what Paul is talking about here is it is continual 
unrepentant sin as if nothing has happened to you. He says, should we continue on in sin? By no means. And here is his reason, and here's what we need to understand, and this is what I want us to really walk away with tonight, is his reason, the reason that we should no longer continue in sin is not because that we're going to lose our salvation or whatever. It has everything to do with the fact that we have a new relationship with sin now. See, a lot, of, a lot is made about our new relationship with God, right? When we're saved, or we have a new relationship with God. How, how would you define this new relationship with God? In comparison to our previous relationship with God, when you're saved, how would you define it? Okay, we have the Holy Spirit. We're saved, okay? It's different. We're children. That's, that's a big one, right? Because what were we before? Enemies. All right, perfect, right? We were once enemies, but now we're his children. So we have a new relationship with God. But here's what you need to see and what Paul is saying here is not only do you have a new relationship with God, but you have a new relationship to sin. You have a new relationship to sin. What is this relationship with sin? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? That is the new relationship. See, what is the relationship to sin before, you're, before you were saved? I'm so glad you asked. Turn to a book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Can someone read that? Ephesians 2, 1. Go for it, Will. Just verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does dead mean? Dead. Good job. No pulse. Gone. Nothing. Dead. Not mortally injured. Not overcome. Dead. We were dead in our sins. Here's another question for you. What can a dead man do? Nothing. Just be dead. Right? That's all they can do is just be dead. So we were, at before Christ, we were dead in sin. Now, what does Romans 6 say? We were once dead in sin, but now we are dead what? To sin. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? And, then so here, and so now we're like, okay, well, I'm dead to sin. What we mean by this, what we mean is this, is that ultimately, man, I am, how could I possibly go back to that dead life? Why would I possibly go back to that dead life? See, here's the thing that we need to understand is, okay, at its basic level, what is sin? At, at its basic level, when I say that I am sinning, what am I doing? I'm going against God's character. In particular, we're go- I'm doing something that's against God's design, right? Like, why is lying a sin? Because God's design is for us to tell the truth. God is a God of truth. This is also important when we talk about, like, things when it comes to, like, like sexuality and different things like that. Why is it a sin for me to have sex outside of marriage? Because God's design is for marriage to be within the confines of a marriage relationship. Right? Let's please stop laughing and talking and paying. Let's pay attention, okay? 
right? That's God's design. God's design for sex is between one man and one woman within the confines of a marriage relationship. Just like this, like, and I've, I've heard this example before, and I hope maybe, like, it's not my example, but it's a really good one, right? You know fire? Fire's a good thing, right? I really like the show Survivor. You guys ever see Survivor? Like, one of the first things they ever do is they have to get fire going. Fire is great when it's in a fireplace. I grew up with a fireplace. I don't have one anymore. But I grew up with a fireplace, and it was really, really cool. And what I've learned is that fire in your house in a fireplace is great. It's amazing. But what happens when that fire gets onto the sofa? It becomes a problem. But here's the difference. Well, here's the thing. What happened? Has the fire changed? No, the fire is still fire. But when the fire is within the proper context, it's totally fine. But when it gets out of that context, it's totally destructive. Same thing when it comes to sex, right? Same thing we talk about sexual sin when it comes to sins of homosexuality. Why is it a sin of, to, for someone to commit actions of homosexuality? Not because like, we're homophobic and we hate those, type, those people that struggle with that. No, it's because God has a design for marriage and that deviates from it. I want to just be very clear. You, if you see someone who struggles with temptations of homosexuality, it's no different than you being tempted with pornography. No different. No, not at all. No different. Both are deviations from God's design. Now, why would God design things? God designed things for what reason? For our good and his glory, right? For our good and his glory. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. Everything according to God's design is designed for our fullest enjoyment. But when, because we are descendants of Adam, because we are born sinners, we sin by nature. It is our nature to sin. We are dead in sin. That is all we can do is sin. When we're saved, we are liberated from that. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer dead in my sin. I'm now alive in Christ. I'm now able to recover and to pursue God's design for me. This whole thing can be laid out in three circles. This is a good way to be able to share the gospel with people and a good, like, pocket thing to share the gospel with people. Actually, it should be on the slides on there. There should be a three-circle slide somewhere, well, either like welcome slides or a sermon slide. Boom, look at that. All right. If you're ever looking for a good way to share the gospel with somebody, here it is. You start off with God's design. God designed everything perfect for our fullest enjoyment and his ultimate glory. But when we go away from God's design, that's called sin, and sin leads to brokenness. Would you agree that we live in a broken world? I think all of us would. We would all agree that we live in a broken world. Some of you could probably look at your own life and see that you have a broken life, broken marriages, broken relationships, broken whatever. And all those squiggly lines that kind of go out from brokenness is because we all seek to fix this brokenness in a lot of different ways. Some people seek to fix this brokenness through, you know, 
sex and relationships. Others try to fix this brokenness through, you know, drugs and alcohol. Others try to fix this brokenness through religion and spirituality. But ultimately what we see is that when we repent of our sins, we repent of our sin, and we believe in the gospel, what I shared with you earlier, how Jesus came and made a way for us to be made right with God. When we repent and we believe in that gospel, then what are we able to do? We are able to then recover and pursue God's design. Ultimately meaning this, is that if you want a true and fulfilled and joy-filled life, it is to say no to sin and say yes to God's design for your life. So when we are willingly sinning, we are willingly choosing brokenness. Willingly choosing brokenness. See, the reason we do this oftentimes is because we think, we think that sin promises, well, it, it does. Sin always promises an aspect of joy, doesn't it? It always, it always promises something. It, there's, it, you know, whether it's like, you know, sin within relationships. It's like if you do this, man, like this person will finally love you. If you give this person this thing that's so precious and so valuable, then you know what? This person will actually accept you now. Or if you, hey, you know, if you do these things that everyone else is doing, then hey, you'll, you'll be able to be loved and accepted and people will like you and people will think you're funny or people will think this or that about you or whatever. It's great or whatever it may be, but it always promises joy, but it always, 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 always leads to brokenness. Always. And what Paul is saying here is that you have been freed from the bondage of brokenness. Why would you willingly go back to it? This is something that's reflected in this. Is, so in 1860, Abraham Lincoln signed, I think it's 1860, 1865, 1860, I think it is. Some, it's somewhere in the 1860s, I know that. Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. You guys know what the Emancipation Proclamation was? It was basically that all enslaved persons were to be freed. And it wasn't until ultimately June 19th, well, because they didn't have Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, or Be Real or Snapchat or whatever. It wasn't until June 19th that the news that, the, that enslaved persons were to be freed, finally reached the final people who were enslaved in Texas. That's what's now celebrated as Juneteenth. But when these people were freed, a lot of them had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to go. Okay, great, I'm free, but I got nowhere to go. So what a lot of them willingly did is they willingly went back to their, their, ma their former masters and worked in exchange for just somewhere to live. They willingly put themselves back into the bondage of slavery because they felt like they had no other options. And I want you guys to understand, as someone who's been saved by the blood of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, and set free from the bondage of slavery, you need to know that you have options, that you are not a slave to your sin anymore. 
that you are dead to this former way of life. And how do we illustrate this? How do we see it illustrated? Well, Paul goes on to explain it. He says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who, were have, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, that in order that, in, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, here's something that's important to know. We are not saved by baptism. No matter what some people may teach, right, baptism does not save somebody. But what we are seeing here is that baptism is a way that we identify with Jesus, Literally what Paul is saying here is if you want to understand your relationship with sin now, when you're baptized, that, that word baptismo or baptizo literally means to be immersed. When you are immersed into Christ Jesus, this, I, this picture of going under the water is to identify with the fact that Jesus died, right? To identify with Jesus' death. identify with the fact that Jesus, just as Jesus died for my sins, I have died. The old sinful man has died. He's no more. And not only do I identify with Christ's death, when I'm coming out of the water, is to identify with the, the new life that Christ has promised me. So 2 Corinthians 5, when it says that for whoever is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The old man has been buried with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live, I, la I live by the power of the Son of God that is within me. For the Christian to willingly sin is to say that the old man is still there when he's not. You need to know that sin for the Christian is something that we will always struggle with until we see Jesus face to face. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the non-Christian has no choice. They're dead in their sin. They're enslaved to their sin. They can't help it. They by nature sin. But the Christian has been freed from this, has been freed from this bondage, has been, been gone from death to life. And because of this, now we have the ability to choose to live a life that is for our fullest enjoyment, fullest fulfillment, and also for God's ultimate glory. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The next time that you are tempted to look at that thing you know you should not look at, Remind yourself that you that old person that it was enslaved to that sin is no longer. You have a choice. You have been given, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You have, with not because of your own strength, but because of the strength of the Holy Spirit, the ability to say no to temptation, no to sin, and to say yes to the holy life that God has called you to.
I, I, I'm not perfect. Make mistakes. There's seasons of my life where I was wrapped up into sins that I wouldn't say in front of a, whole, a large group of people, but I would say to people one-on-one. I'm not perfect. But I will say this. That I was able to, when I, was, when I married Kayla, I was able to say that me and Kayla in our relationship, we never went physically farther than we ever should have went. And I want you to, I want you to, I want to tell you something. I don't feel like I missed out on anything. I don't feel like I missed out on anything. I feel, and here's what I want you to understand, is that God's design leads to ultimate joy. That God's design will never lead you to be miserable. But here's the thing that's so amazing, is that let's say that we did, let's say that I did make a mistake. Let's say that some people in here have made that mistake. Here's what you need to know, is that you know what? There is freedom in Jesus, that that was the old person, that person is gone, that there is a new creation, and that new creation can live that life and pursue the life that God has called for you to live. You don't have to walk around with your head hanging low, that you can walk around proud and and excited and joy-filled, knowing that God has declared you righteous, and the joyful life that he has set before you is still available to you. Still available to you. You're dead to sin. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. You know, I want you to imagine that you, like, that you're like a prince or a princess, right? Some of you are like, I am a princess. But just imagine. You're a prince or you're a princess. You're next in line to the throne of a kingdom. And you're out being crazy, doing stupid stuff. And they were to say, you know, hey, you should stop doing that. You want to know why? Because, like, you're next in line to be king. You're next in line to be queen. Right? The things that are okay for other people are not okay for you, not because the thing is different, but because of who you are. Here's what we need to remember is that the reason that we live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, the reason we say no to sin and we say yes to righteousness is because of who we have been declared to be. You're a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. Ladies, when it comes to dating, I mean, don't settle for some bum. You're a daughter of the king. You deserve to be treated like one. And you shouldn't settle. Guys, if you date someone, they are a daughter of the king. 
Treat them like it. Treat them like it. I think about it all the time. I've been blessed with a wonderful daughter. She's almost seven months old. And I know that, God forbid, the day will come where some poor, unfortunate soul will walk up to my doorstep because he, he has the hots for my daughter. I know it's going to happen. And I already have a theological exam that he has to fill out. I'm just kidding. But here's what I want us to think about. What would be more nerve-wracking? Dating my daughter or dating a daughter of the God of the universe? Right? A lot of guys are, cri- are, are stupid because they don't take into account the identity of who they should be and the identity of the one that they are with. See, we don't continue in sin, not because we're afraid of hell or we're afraid of this. It's because, man, of who God has declared us to be. We're dead to that former way of life. So we've talked about this continual sin. But okay, well now, what if I just sin occasionally? All right, I'm not going to continue in sin. I'm not going to continue in that. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, because obviously what we're talking about here, and this, is, this goes back to the truck analogy, right? The truck analogy. Those of you who don't know the truck analogy, ask me at Chick-fil-A, right? You've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You should look different. all right, I'm not going to continue living the same way that I was living, but we get to this. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? This is interesting, right? It seems like Paul has asked the same question twice. Shall we continue in sin? Skip to verse 15. Are we to sin? Seems like he's asking the same question twice. But in Greek, the first are we to sin is this. It's indefinite, continual sin. The second is this one. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is this. Okay, are we to continue on living a sinful life? No, we should not. Okay, we shouldn't do this, but what about just occasional one-time moments? What about that one time where I was like, you know what, I've been good for a while. I deserve a me moment. That's what the second one is referencing. What does he say? By no means. No. Sin is sin. Don't seek to justify sin. Here's the thing you need to know. Jesus justifies the sinner, but he never justifies the sin. Jesus justifies the sinner, but he never justifies the sin. Sin is condemned. Always. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now... 
that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a good verse to memorize, Romans 6, 23. You see this word sanctification. Now, I feel like I've given this illustration before. I'm pretty sure I have. When we are saved, we are declared righteous, spotless, sinless. Psalm says that he has taken us and separated us, separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's taken our sins. He's cast them into the sea of forgetfulness to be remembered no more. That Jesus, when he looks at you, does not see your sin. So you do not need to be ashamed when you stand before God. You're declared righteous. But here's the thing. Our everyday life experiences is not necessarily this, is it? Even when you're forgiven of your sins, a lot of us still carry the, the shame and the regret of past things that have happened to us or maybe even things that we have done. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, you know what, hey, if you feel bad, then that's a problem. I'm not going to make you feel bad for feeling bad. But I will tell you this. You don't have to. But what God's desire when we talk about sanctification is this. Is that you're righteous. You're declared righteous. But your everyday experience is not. Right? And the process of sanctification is not to, you know, overnight change you. But over, it's this, is that over the course of your life, who you experience yourself to be on a daily basis becomes more and more like who God has declared you to be. That over the course of your life, you will find that God has predestined things to make you more into the image of Jesus more righteous. And that's the goal. That should be the goal of every Christian is that I want my life to reflect who God has declared me to be. God has declared me righteous. I want my life to reflect that. I want my life to reflect that. See, I don't necessarily have a ton of money. But if I did, Believe me, you would know. I'm just going to be real with you. Some people are super humble with their money. I don't think I could be. Like, I would try. But, like, if I had the money, you better believe I'm rolling up in a new whip next week, okay? Like, it just is what it is. I'm going on vacations. I'm doing these things. Why? Because I want my life to reflect the money that I got. Right? That's just me. It's sinful. It's not good. But that's just me. Likewise, man, if God has declared you righteous, wouldn't you want your life to reflect that? Because here's the thing, guys, is that every day that you live, you are preaching the gospel to a watching world. When you say that you are a Christian, you're preaching the gospel to a watching world. And here's what you need to see is you're telling them that God has declared me righteous. And you know what? The best way to show them that is by living like it. Live like it. And when you fall short, man, that's when we preach God's grace, don't we? Thank you for his grace. 
It's awesome that it's there. But you know what? I want my life to reflect the fact that I have been declared righteous. If I was, you know, if you go to the circus and you see like the trapeze artists and they're swinging and they're doing like these death-defying stunts, they have like that net underneath them to catch them. Like, do you think because that net is there, all they do is they just jump off the thing into the net? No. Why? Because they have skills that everyone watching them would, would, would kill for. They have these incredible skills. And them just falling off the platform into the net doesn't demonstrate those skills. I have these skills. Let me demonstrate it. Here's the thing. God has declared me righteous. Let me live like it. And I don't live like it for the applause of man. But Matthew 5, 14, what does it say? Is that let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father as in heaven. Ultimately, is that the same God who's declared me righteous and has made a way for me to live like it is the same God who can declare you righteous. The same God who's taken me in my brokenness and in my sin and in my shame and in my regret and has liberated me from that, allowing me to live a life that doesn't look back. I don't look at the past. It's the same God that can take you and all the shame and all the regret and all the things that you feel and remove them from you, separate them from you as far as the east is from the west and allow you to live a life that isn't held back by your past decisions, but a life that is looking forward to the wonderful day where you see Jesus face to face. What gospel does your life preach? Does your gospel preach a a life, or does your life preach a gospel that is that God takes bad people and makes them kind of better? Or is your life a gospel that says that God takes dead people and makes them alive and righteous? We don't justify sin, but when we sin, When I sin, when you sin, we show grace to one another because God has shown grace to us. I want you guys to know, if you ever fall short, make a mistake, you don't feel like you can tell anybody. You can tell me. You could tell me. I've been serving in student ministry at this church for 10 years. The things that I have been told of the decisions that some students have made would shock you. I have one student who had a lifetime ban from a particular gas station because he robbed from that gas station so frequently. Lifetime ban. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Right? Here's what you want. You can tell me. Because you know what? The same grace that God offered me I would be wrong to not extend to you. And you know what? You, it's may, it may be difficult for you to believe that God can forgive you. And I'm not perfect. But if an imperfect goofball screw-up like me can forgive you, imagine what the holy God of the universe can do. Does this make sense? We don't diminish the seriousness of sin but we don't act as if we're still living in its shadow. We've been freed from sin. Let's act like it. And I'm going to pray. I'll let you guys go. You guys did good. You guys, first week back, you know, 
Either either you were really paying attention or you're just really tired. I think you're paying attention. All right. We're going to go to Chick-fil-A. For those of you who have never been with us, never been here with us, we like to go to Chick-fil-A, circle up our cars in the parking lot, you know, kind of hang out. feels nice outside, too, so I encourage you to come hang out. If you have any questions, you need to talk to someone, talk to me, talk to Brock, talk to Jay, talk to Kobe, talk to Colin, Josh, Caleb, any other adults in the room that I'm not thinking of at the moment. I'm sorry. Right? Talk to somebody. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, that we fall short and we're not perfect. Father, you don't call us to be perfect so that you can forgive. Father, you forgive us and our take us in our brokenness and in our, our, our shambles and in our mess. And, Father, that you breathe life into us. And, Father, that you declare us righteous. And, Father, that we, I beg you, Father, that you would help me to live a life that reflects who you have declared me to be. That, God, I wouldn't try to, Father, I wouldn't try to impress, impress anybody. I wouldn't seek to fix the brokenness of this world through sin. That, Father, I would just trust in the person and the work of Jesus. And that, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, that, God, you would give me a desire to be able to not go back to the things that you freed me from. But, Father, when I do fall short, that you would remind me of just how amazing your grace is. God, I thank you for these students, Father. I I love these students more than I could ever say. But, Father, you love them immensely more. God, if there's anyone in this room that is struggling, Father, encourage them. Help them to know how much you love them. Help them to, to know the freedom that is in you. God, for those who are just going to go eat, bless the food we're going to eat. Bless our fellowship. Bless our time together. God, we ask all of these things in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, y'all, love, peace, and chicken grease.